Hey, welcome everybody. This is Table Talk, your healthy theological radio addiction. And I'm a part of the tripartite host. I'm Brent Kuhlman with uh, Adam Moline and Clint Poppy. Gentlemen, good to be with you again. Can I be Pompeii? Whatever you want to be. <laughs> because I'm a six foot nine Chinese woman when I go to the bank, and then I say I'm a millionaire as well. But they'll, they'll recognize the fact that I'm a six foot nine Chinese woman, but they haven't recognized the fact that I'm a millionaire. So I told the banker in Murdoch, I said, one of these days, you're going to have to accept that. And I'm, I'm coming to collect my millions. And he laughs at me and says, ah, that'll never happen. I said, yes, it will. One of these days, it's going to happen. That's okay. <clears throat> I'm 69. That's uh, what I identify as. So I want my Social Security now, every month. Not a bad. That's not a bad idea. I that's already, really I already claimed idea. it. You can't have it. You know that that's the thing. When when we should we should claim all kinds of things to collect all kinds of money from the federal government. That's what we should start doing. That that's the gig. You've you've just hit it. I yeah. Oh, I've had this plan for a while. Brilliant. You're brilliant. So. It's it's amazing how the old Adam can work twenty four seven three sixty five to defraud, cheat, and steal. <laughs> Stick with what I'm good at. <laughs> Get older, Adam, every week. So, <laughs> Claim disability. There you go. Exactly. The whole enchilada while you play golf at Palm Springs, et cetera. That's, that's not a bad idea. Well, enough nonsense. We, we're going to take a little break here in our study of the Apostles' Creed. We're going we're gonna to Ricky Gervais. That's, that's to put the light way of talking about it. We're going to Ricky Gervais what the Methodists have decided to do in the United States. And... Uh, to, to say it more seriously, we're going to give a, a serious diagnosis, a, a serious theological diagnosis of what the Methodists have decided to do. Now, in case our listeners don't know what the United Methodist Church has decided to do, Adam, fill us in. What, is, what have they decided? Well, um, boy, I suppose it's been about a year or two ago. The United Methodist Church in its uh, convention— is this past summer, if I remember correctly. —voted to maintain a biblical view on homosexual marriage and prevented— um, pastors from being uh, openly homosexual, and if they were, they would be removed. Um, and uh, this was in large part due to the influence of overseas Christians that were a part of the Methodist Church. Africans and, in particular. Yes. yes. And, uh, and so now they are uh, deciding uh, whether or not to split their church body over this issue. And uh, ironically, I think this is interesting, the group that lost that vote that we were talking about uh, says, we've come up with a plan to give the other people $25 million to leave our church uh, and form their own church, and even uh, several more million dollars if they create different church bodies and whatnot, and they'll have all the rights to their property and things like that, but they can leave with their biblical worldview is what the, the way I understand it taking place. So, Clint, if I, if I understand this correctly, the United Methodist Church is planning on splitting in two parts. One would be what they'd call the traditional Methodist that would hold to the biblical teaching on marriage and who can be clergy, and that would exclude homosexual marriage and the blessing of homosexual clergy, Correct. Correct. Uh, I think the uh, transgender topic and issue—that's part is, of it as well. Part of it as well. Now, if I if I understand things correctly, too, um, the United Methodist Church at this time—I uh, think it's in place at this point, maybe not—but it, it was something like this: that if if a pastor would bless a same-sex couple in marriage, or something along that line, they would be suspended without pay for a certain period of time, and then if they do it again then they would be removed from the clergy roster. And, and that, ha that is the official teaching, but that has not been enforced in the United States in a long time. Uh, Thirty years ago, there was a, uh, a Methodist pastor in uh, my hometown, 
West Point, Nebraska. And when uh, he did some things that were n- not along the, the lines of uh, the homosexual stuff, but uh, did some things that were contrary to Scripture and offensive to the people there, uh, he was reassigned. And he was reassigned to Lincoln. And here in Lincoln, uh, 20, 22, 25 years ago, he was blessing same-sex marriages then. And the Methodist Church, uh, the I, I'm not exactly sure how they, uh, if they have districts or diocese or exactly what it is, but we've got one of our members here that gets the newspaper uh, for the local area. And uh, they, they knew this was going on. It was kind of a don't ask, don't tell approach to that. So that has been going on. And not only in Lincoln, Nebraska, but it's been going on with a wink and a nod for many, many years, as much as two decades right. I, in the Methodist Church in America. Right, and I remember one of the famous examples of this uh, was in Omaha with Jimmy Creech. If you remember him, he was, he was blessing same-sex couples in marriage ceremonies. And I don't know whatever happened to him, whether he was reassigned or if he just quit and joined the UCC or something else. But yeah, your point's well taken. So what we've got here, gentlemen, bottom line is uh, the United Methodist Church has come to an impasse, if you will, between two groups to generalize. One who says no to homosexual marriage and homosexual clergy and transgender clergy, et cetera, or whatever. And the other group that says yes to it all. And they can't, they can't come to any kind of uh, settlement, if you will, doctrinally speaking, right? Yeah, and it's kind of a weird topic to have this sort of thing. I don't know that there's ever been a church body created over this issue before. Um, sexual ethics, I, I know it's always been talked about in the church as uh, wrong across the board, but now there's actually a church splitting into two over this issue, which is... Boy, this has to be the first time ever that's happened. Well, There's this, been church bodies that have gone down this path as a whole, but not uh, ever yeah. splitting and creating a new denomination. Well, the seeds of this was all, this was already going on in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod in the 60s and 70s when you had the investigation with the guys that left and formed Seminex in the 1970s. Ethically speaking, they would have they would have sympathized with the pro-gay, pro-transgender group of today because bottom line here they would argue that God's word's not clear on this. And so what really decides these issues is you, how you feel and how you think. The old Adam does, you know. Or the, 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 the religious way of saying it is that the Spirit is leading me and the Spirit is leading our church body into now a higher level of existence, which, of course, the early church and Paul, they, they just didn't get it. So the Spirit's led us into a, a better place now. That's the old Adam justifying sin and the violation of what, what God has put into our lives for good, you know, from Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, male and female, and then he marries the male and female in Genesis 2. And for this reason, man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. Is it worth pointing out that that happens before the fall into sin? And yeah. so when God declares that all the creation is very good, he's exactly. talking about that as well? That's exactly right, Adam. So marriage between a man and a woman and having children in the estate of marriage is the very good of creation. So every time that we conduct or preside over a marriage ceremony, this is part of the very good of creation, which, which Jesus Christ has redeemed. Redeemed. The fallen, and he's redeemed it so that we can live by faith and then love properly. 
Yeah, so good point. So what we're, what we're, what we're dealing with here is when you have an entire group in the Methodist Church, and, and we're just talking about them now because they're in the news. They're not the only ones, of course. I mean, the ELCA has lost millions, well, maybe not millions, but hundreds of thousands of people. Fastest shrinking church body in the world. Over this issue. Yes. Yeah. So there and no, there have been many, you know, you, before you said you don't know if there's ever been a church body that's been created because of this. And I think some of the splinter groups that have come off of the ELCA, uh, some of them, it may have been apostolic succession, but a lot of folks have branched off and created their own church bodies or confederations because they rejected the uh, more common liberal progressive views of sexuality and marriage and they had no home in the elca so the methodists like you said are in the news now yeah but this is a this is a problem in many many christian church bodies now for my money i think it's worth talking about this a little bit more and really get to the heart of what's going on i I like to i like to compare it to no-fault divorce that's what they're doing it's no-fault divorce you go your way we'll go our way and we'll just call it good Now, this is not God-pleasing. I'm going to say it categorically. This is not God-pleasing. Why not? Because here again, we have another example of the church not using the office of the keys. That is to say, when you have people in the church who will not listen to the Word of God and, in fact, categorically reject the teaching of the Word of God, will not repent, and therefore withhold themselves outside of Christ's forgiveness— and they do not want to lead a life according to God's word, you need to use what key? The binding key. You need to bind these people. Back. Can I get you to back up a little bit, sure. Pastor? There may be some people listening that when you use the phrase office of the keys, they may not be 100% okay. clear. So uh, could you expand on that just a little bit? Sure. Thanks. Thank you for helping me uh, say this better. So in Matthew 16 and Matthew 18, Jesus gives his church what we call the office of the keys, because Jesus says in Matthew 16 and Matthew 18, whatever you bind on earth, that is whatever you lock, whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven, and whatever you loose, unlock, whatever you loose on earth is loosed in heaven. So that's why we call it the office of the keys. Keys lock or they unlock the door. And Jesus gives the church keys, or a key if you will, that either locks the door to heaven or it opens the door, unlocks the door to heaven. Jesus does this again in John 20 on the night of his resurrection in the upper room. He forgives those who've sinned against him when he says, peace be with you. And then he breathes on them and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. And he gives them a task. As the Father has sent me, so now I send you. And what's the task? If you forgive anyone their sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. This is what we call the office of the keys. When you have sinners who will not repent, you bind them. In other words, you lock the door to heaven to them. You tell them, all right, you don't want to, you don't want to repent of your sin. You don't want to receive Christ's forgiveness. All right, then you aren't forgiven. And if you don't repent, you will go to hell. Okay? Now, when they repent and ask for forgiveness, you use the key to unlock the door of heaven. And you say, Christ says you're forgiven here on earth. And therefore, it counts before God in, in heaven. And my point again is this, before we go to break, because we're going to talk more about this when we come back after break. My point is this, is is what the Methodists are doing, in my opinion, based upon the scriptures, is not God-pleasing. It's like a no-fault divorce, okay? 
In other words, they're not going to use the keys that Christ has given. What should happen is this, according to Scripture, is that the presiding bishop, and I don't know if they use that terminology in the Methodist Church, but I'll just use it, the one who's in charge, the presiding bishop of the Methodist should tell the people in the Methodist Church, all the clergy, all the lay people, all the congregations who want to have homosexual marriage, etc., which is contrary to the Word of God, that presiding bishop should say, no, you need to repent of that. And if they won't do it, he needs to say, all right, then I'm binding you in your sin. I'm binding you. We're not going to just let you leave, no-fault divorce kind of way. We're going to use the keys that the Lord has given. Now, why is this important? Well, there's more to this. Do we need to go to a break? Or are we gonna- well, we're, we're going to go to a break in uh, less than a minute. Okay. Just a couple of, couple of thoughts. Um, this is never going to happen in the Methodist Church, what you said, because there is no clear person who is in charge or who has jurisdiction, and there is no clear standard. You, know, you said these things are contrary to the Word of God. Um, the Word of God is not the ultimate or the final authority for many Christians, including many Christians in the Methodist Church. Yeah. And I think that's at the heart of of this what is your authority where is your authority because if it is your heart then you go one direction if it is the word of god then you go another well i think to put the best construction on it methodists would say that we do have the word of god but then whether they'll live according to it's another issue we're going back and talk some more about this. there's a lot more meat left on that bone hang on tight You are listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska. All right, welcome back, everybody, to Table Talk, your healthy theological radio addiction. I'm Brent Kuhlman, here with Clint Poppy and Adam Moline. We're just uh, making some observations about uh, the planned split in the United Methodist Church based upon, you know, the certain ethical issues that we've been talking about. I've been contending that they need to use the office of the keys, the faithful Methodists. They need to use the office of the keys. But before I talk more about that, Adam, you mentioned when we first started that there's some money involved here. What is it? How much money is involved? Twenty-five million dollars. So, it's a proposal that um, is being put forward by the small leadership group uh, to the to be voted on. I think in May uh, that says that since we can't come to an agreement on this, what we propose is the group that supports traditional marriage leave the United Methodist Church, which is interesting because it's the larger group, and that the other church that remains will give them twenty-five million dollars as a um, you know, a seed to begin their denomination. And if they split into more than one group, we'll set aside $2 million more million. And so we're giving you this money, essentially, to leave us and let us practice our abomination. And um, it, it, it's not that much money. I know $25 million, we would be fine if we had that for ourselves. But for an organization like that, that's not that much money. It won't go that far. And uh, it's odd that the minority is paying the majority to leave. I, th- I think both those things are unique. Clint, what, what do you make of this uh, money being exchanged in, in this way? 
What do you make of this? Well, there there are several several things that pop to my mind. You know, when when you belong to an organization and you're in the minority and you can't get your way, there are many ways that you can react. One would be to submit to the majority. And another way would be to keep fighting. And ways that you keep fighting would be, uh, can we increase our base so that we can go from the minority into the majority? Well, I think what's going on in the Methodist Church is they see the numbers, especially the numbers of more conservative Christian Methodists in Africa, and they think there's no way we're going to beat the numbers game. And I think... Many of the folks, and this is, this is mostly the United States and Europe, that are in the minority. I think the vast majority of these Christians uh, are white. I think the vast majority of these Christians are upper middle class or wealthy. And I think the one th- they're, they're thinking to themselves, the one thing that we have that perhaps the people in Africa need is money. And so we can keep the name, the United Methodist Church. We can buy them off or bribe them or pay them off or whatever uh, phrase or terminology that you want to be. Give them incentive and seed money. That just sounds so much more pious. And uh, in so doing, the folks, again, mostly in America, but the more progressive, the liberals, the ones that are, that are fighting for gay marriage, the ones that are fighting for the blessing of all kinds of sexual deviancies um, that have been going on in America for, again, decades, this is their out. They can, uh, they can pay off the majority. The majority leaves and does their thing, and then they can stay with their name, with their so-called tradition, and they can do whatever they want to do. One wonders... And I'm, I'm just going to throw this out for conversation's sake, but could, could there be another thing going on here in connection with this? Could it be that you have some uh, religious racism going on? What I mean by that is you mentioned the white elites with the cash. Could they possibly consider these African Methodists to be primitive, unenlightened, like, unlike us? In, in the enlightened, spirit-filled church. Uh, could this possibly be part of the problem here? Uh, we see this in uh, politics in America today where kind of the dirty little secret of the people who claim to be the most tolerant and the most progressive seem to be the ones that... Um, are the most racist people the, on the face of the earth. They're the most racist. They want to they wanna keep, they wanna keep uh, people down on the plantation. So... Uh, I have not heard that um, explicitly said with regard to this Methodist Church debacle. I have within the Anglican Church. Okay. You have Anglican white elite bishops and priests who speak this way about the African Anglicans. That's, That's on the record. And I think it's also on the record in the Lutheran Church where the um, white elites in uh, parts of Europe World Council of Churches, have been very, very critical of the black conservative Lutherans in Africa. And so if this is going on in the Lutheran Church, if this is going on in the uh, Anglican Church, 
it probably is at least to some extent going on in the African or uh, in the Methodist Church as well. And isn't isn't that the most ironic thing of all? The church that has as its motto uh, the welcome place, open doors, open minds, all these kind of things. That if this is more than a theological issue, if this is a um, those ignorant folks down in Africa aren't as progressive or aren't as woke as we are, uh, that just compounds the sin of everything that's going on. Yeah, I think you've, you, you touched on something that bears a lot of merit when you first started talking about this in the, after our break, Clint, and it's this, that you know the last vote that the United Methodist Church had on this particular issue, the progressives lost because of primarily the African vote. Yep. And, and the Africans simply believe what the Bible says right. with regard to this marriage, particular topic. Yep, to marriage and who can be clergy, et cetera. That's right. That's right. Uh, th- uh, most people are not paying attention to this very carefully, and that's why we're having this conversation. And, and to be fair, uh, I'm looking back at the articles from when this vote happened. 53% of people voted for what they called the traditional plan, which supported what biblical marriage is. And that means that the 47%, 46.5% basically voted against it. And supporters of the traditional plan included many African and Philippine members of the, the church, as well as in Europe and the United States. So it's about 50-50 here in the United States, according to this article. And then overseas is where the majority comes from, the extra 3% they needed to get the uh, approval. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And with the numbers in Africa and maybe like the Philippines growing. too, I had, those numbers are growing and the Methodist Church in America Shrink. is shrinking. Right. And so I think, I think the leaders have seen the tea leaves, read the tea leaves, and they realize they are not going to win the numbers game. So bottom line, I'm going to go back to what I said. You've got like a no-fault divorce situation going on here. And by the way, we'll sweeten the pot by giving you 25 mil. And if you need a little more, we'll give you a little more. If, you, if Just so we can get our way and we can continue with what we want to do. Now that's, you know, okay. But now let's, let's, let's talk about, let's go back to the theological part of this, the biblical part. Um, you remember when, uh, when Peter was doing something that was unfaithful to the Word of God and f- unfaithful to biblical practice? Remember, Paul got in his face publicly, and, and, and Peter repented. Uh, you remember in 1 Timothy, uh, it's chapter 1, where Paul speaks uh, to Timothy. Now, you hold the faith and a good conscience because if you don't, you're going to be like people who shipwrecked their faith called Hymenaeus and Alexander. And what's interesting is that Paul says, I've handed, I'm quoting now directly, Paul says about Hymenaeus and Alexander, I've handed them over to Satan so they will no longer blaspheme. In other words, Paul was using the office of the keys with Peter. He was using it with Hymenaeus and Alexander who had shipwrecked the faith and their faith. And he handed them over to Satan so they wouldn't blaspheme anymore. Here's my point. And I hope, I hope, against all hope, (laughs) I'm kind of like Abraham here, I hope against all hope that there will be faithful Christians in the United Methodist Church who will say, no, we shouldn't do this, just go our separate ways and call it good. I pray that they will use the binding key if these people will not repent. Um, Now, getting back to the heart of this, and and my head is spinning as I talk about this because I want to make sure I say this 
uh, correctly and in a churchly way. When you don't use the office of the keys, then you absent Christ from his church. Because Jesus says in Matthew's gospel, in the context of the use of the office of the keys, he says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. Now, so when you won't use the keys that the Lord has given, you've then absented Christ from his church. And then you're on the ragged edge of no longer being what? Christian. Church. Yeah, that's right. Church. Now, there's another aspect, and Adam wanted to talk about this. You're, you're, with, you're withholding sin from who? From Jesus, yeah. When you decide in your woken state, I don't know if that's the right way to say it, in your wokeness, that something is no longer sin and that we've been wrong about it, what you're saying is that Christ doesn't have to die for it, which then changes who your Christ is. He's not the same God then that is present in the scriptures and uh, uh, then therefore present in his word and sacrament. You've changed who he is. He's a different person, which means you're essentially worshiping a different God. And you can say, well, we still worship Jesus. Just because you call him Jesus doesn't mean he's the Jesus of the Bible. We still believe in God. Uh, you know, James says, you do well then. Even the demons believe that there's a God and they tremble in fear at that. And, and that's what they're doing. They're saying the Jesus that we follow is not the Jesus of the Bible. And therefore they're worshiping a false and different God, which is blasphemy then against the first commandment. Yeah, this is, this is one of the most tragic things that happens in the church over a period of time, is that you, you say that sexual sin is not sin. And this can go for any sin. Right, but uh, for, our, for our point today, yep. they will, the, the, these people will say that sexual sin is not sin. Therefore, you don't need Jesus for the forgiveness of that sin. And once again, then, what you've done is you have excluded sin and sinners from the Savior of sin and sinners. And when you do that, when you do that, you have absented Christ from his church, and then you are on the ragged edge of no longer being church. See, for me, this is the rub. This is where we finally have to look at how these things happen. The Methodists are going to decide to split. We'll give you 25 mil. You do your thing. We'll do our thing, and we'll just call it good. When you don't use the office of the keys, whether it's forgiving people when they repent of their sins or if you don't bind them when they will not repent, you are absenting Christ from sin and his sinners. And this is precisely what the Pharisees were doing all the time in the New Testament. We haven't sinned. Good Lord, we don't need any forgiveness of sins. We don't need this Jesus. And that's precisely what's happening here, you see. Uh, this, this, is, this is the ultimate problem here. And I don't think we talk enough about this. And I'm going to say it again one more time before we quit. When you say that any sin, including sexual sin, is no longer sin, then you, know, you don't no longer need Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. And this is the tragedy that's going on. So while this discussion is uh, in the news, is talking about sexuality, same-sex marriage, these kind of things, uh, what's really at the heart of this is a matter of Christology, the person and work of Christ. And church. Who, who is Christ? What has Christ done? For whom has Christ done? And how does Christ work today in the world? Right. And uh, these, are the, these are the theological topics that are at the heart of the matter. And the, the things that are on the outside that are exposing this problem are the questions about sexuality. Is that fair? Yeah. 
And it, it gets illustrated quite simply as this. So let's say, for example, I know we're about out of time, so I'll do it as quickly as I can. If someone comes to you in your congregation and says, Pastor, I have these tendencies towards this sexual sin, and you say, well, what's God's word say about this? Is this God-pleasing? And they say, well, no, I know it's not God-pleasing. You say, that's right, it's not. Now, what do you do with this? You repent of it and ask Jesus for forgiveness. You're there to forgive the sinner, you see, but this is what's not being done. Well, I hear the music. In the meantime, stay Lutheran, my friends. We'll talk again.